Hush, hush, hush. Here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you. He'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the Relentlessly Informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. Hello, this is Simon. And I'm Chris. And today we'll be speaking about the Woolerton gnomes. This is uh, from one of the children who saw whatever it was they saw at Woolerton. When we went to Woolerton Park, we was messing about. We was just looking around the school at first. And when we come back, it was about half past eight. And when we were coming back, Patrick fell over and he said, look at those things in the woods. We seen all little men with long black beards. They had cars beside them and all that lot. And then we ran further down and we seen one come out the hole where the fence was. One come out and start jigging at us. When we went towards it, it went back where it came from. When we looked up, we seen loads of them. We're all blue, green things on them in the trees, all laughing, all coming out holes in the tops of the trees. After that, we just went over the fence to look at them. And when we went closer to them, they went back in the holes. All the colors they wore. The top was blue. Some of the trousers ripped and got yellow patches on all of that lot of them. Most of them were in the cars. When we went back towards the gate to come out of Woolerton Park, we seen a lot of them come back out again in the trees. So, Simon, tell us the basics of what happened at Woolerton. Let's get the the simple facts right, first of all. 23rd of September, 1979, as the the young boy who's remembering there suggests, around about 8.15, 8.30, accounts are slightly different. A group of half a dozen kids found themselves um, at Woolerton Park uh, near Nottingham. They went into the park and it seems to have been after hours. They were messing around as kids will. And they were aged, we think, from between six and 10, maybe six and 11. I'm a little bit vague about the numbers because the numbers vary in different accounts. But I think half, half a dozen. It could have been as many as eight. It could have been seven. It could have been six. But these are the numbers. And as they were walking through the northern part of the Woolerton grounds, they ran into a series of, well, supernatural entities. They were crawling into an area called the swamps. And this was a a fenced area with lots of trees. So it was wooded fence, but also very swampy underfoot, very muddy kind of places. One of my contacts there tells me where when he was a kid, he lost lots of shoes. They see suddenly lots of strange creatures in the trees, but then on the ground in small cars. And the word they used to describe these beings were gnomes. They were driving around in about 30 little cars, two of them in each car, and chasing the children. There's then a second encounter, the children skedaddle, and to some extent, the gnomes seem to have chased them. And at this point, the kids got out of the park and the the gnomes disappeared. And this became a national news story, first a local, then a national news story. Yeah, okay. You can see people seeing gnomes, but in cars. Why? Uh, Just totally bizarre. 
we're, we're very lucky with Woolerton because there were just so many sources. The newspapers in 1979 did a hell of a good job. They sent out journalists who spoke to the children and spoke to their parents. We have lots of quotations. The headmaster of three of the kids recorded them in an interview that we still have. And we'll give you a, a sample of this recording a little bit later. And then we also have Marjorie Johnson, who was then the secretary of the Ferry Investigation Society, who ran an investigation. So not only do we have an incredibly strange incident, we also and usually have lots and lots of sources. Right. And one of the things that we have to understand is the place. And here, Chris, I would hand over to you. Can you tell us about Woolerton Park? Well, it's the uh, grounds. It's about 500 acres of an estate um, housing Woolerton Hall. This was built between 1580 and 1588 for Sir Francis Willoughby. It's known as a prodigy house. And it's this fantasia of a late Elizabethan manor that stands on a hill. Very eccentric, grand, lots of towers, lots of glass. It was believed to have been designed by the same fellow who designed Hardwick Hall. It was built of stone from Lincolnshire, which was said to have been paid for with coal from the Woolerton mines. And we'll talk about the significance of those coal mines a little bit later. It's now a historical uh, natural history museum, actually, and the grounds are home to a deer park, and they have all kinds of days out and activities and weddings and things. It's also said to be the most haunted building in Nottinghamshire. Fun fact, Woolerton Hall was filmed as Wayne Manor in the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises. So it's an eccentric place. It has lots of local folklore about it, but I don't know how much about gnomes. One thing that's interesting about um, the grounds of Woolerton Hall, and one thing I've noticed in another couple of places in Britain that have a supernatural reputation, it's completely surrounded by it's completely surrounded by houses. It's a green island. If you look at it on the map, it looks a little bit like a London park. If you're looking on the satellite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a special a special place in that sense for the people who lived round about. Another example of this that also has a supernatural reputation is Boggett Hole Clough, which is a park in the north of Greater Manchester. Oh. And that too is a green island surrounded by red roofs, small terraced housing. Very much a similar situation. And when we're thinking about this experience, we might want to ask ourselves whether that it gives it a special special energy just to keep this as vague as possible. I want to know a little more about the swamp since that's where supernatural creatures are traditionally supposed to live. So in the interview that the headmaster did with the kids, and this was 48 hours after they saw this, perhaps even less, I think it was the second day after, they described in some detail where they had the sighting. And over the years, there have been lots of arguments about where in the park this sighting took place. And really, when you listen to the kids, it it seems clear that it was near the adventure playground in the north of the park. And if you go to our website, you'll see we've had a beautiful map done up of the park as it was in 1979. And the kids referred to this area called the swamp. Now, I, I don't know in American English. For me, with British English, it's a little bit unusual that kids would use the term swamp yes. 
it, yes. it's, it's not a word that I used when I was growing up, and I was almost exactly the same age as the Woolerton kids. But it refers to this area of trees right on the northern fringe of the park, about 100, 150 yards in. And this area has a light wooden fence going around it. Um, one of my contacts, again, talked about there being no, not no trespassing, but don't enter signs. And of course, for any self-respecting child, particularly perhaps <laughs> any self-respecting male in 1979, that was just an invitation to go on in, to crawl through the fence, hop between the, the islands of, of relatively stable earth and try not to fall into the woods. There were lots of logs on the ground. And this is where they had their first run in with the gnomes in this swampy area. Yeah, I would have expected it to be called a mirror or something on that order um they call it a wetland on their website so it's got a more ecological connotation today but it sounds like it would be uh kind of treacherous one of the children i think said something about quicksand or mud or something you could get stuck into or sink into one of the incidents in the sighting was that one of the kids actually trying to escape from the gnomes trips over a log and falls into the mud. And this caused, of course, great entertainment among the kids that this kid uh-huh. was caked, caked in mud. I, I suspect that this swamp was essentially an American word. It certainly existed in British English, don't get me wrong, but it would be for describing other lands uh, because you, you wouldn't talk about swamps in Britain. And so I think this is presumably something that kids got off a TV programme and then applied it rather melodramatically um, to to a local to a local bog, Chris. Do you know other times where there were supernatural sightings associated with wetlands? I was thinking with fairy lore. If anything, it seems to be the opposite. That, for example, there's a Welsh writer who says that fairies are only ever seen on dry land. Oh yes, I've heard that too. Um, I think of fairies in the form of things like Will o' the Wisp uh, or Jack Jackie Lantern leading people astray. And I, I think of those as fairy-like entities. I think of the boggarts in the holes that uh, I, I think of them as wetland creatures. Right. right. That's that's very interesting. The, there's a long tradition in Britain, particularly certain parts of Britain, of what's sometimes called fairy disorientation, where someone out walking typically at night is led astray and tricked into the bog. And right. I've never... Mm-hmm. I'd never made that connection, but of course, that's exactly what happens here, isn't it? Okay, because yeah. You have the gnomes messing around with the kids, messing with their minds, if you like, and they end up, they collapse into the bog. And when you have these fairy accounts in Britain going all the way back, going all the way back actually in the UK to the 1200s is our earliest, the classic sequence of events is that the the person is misled. They fall into the bog and the fairies laugh. And laugh, what you yes. have here, you have the description. The children say the, the gnomes were joyful. They were laughing yes. as they were driving yes. around. So that, that's, that's a really interesting, an interesting way to look at it. What do you think these kids actually knew about gnomes? I mean, was that common folklore for children of that age? You, you say you were about the same age. What did you know about gnomes and 1979. So in 1979, I would have been six. And if you'd said to me, what's a gnome? I would have immediately thought of garden centres. 
and right. um, the things that were sold at that date in garden centres. And I remember being taken to garden centres in the late 70s, early 80s. And the only thing that vaguely interested me were there were these delightful finger-sized plastic gnomes that you could stick yeah. into pot plants. And they were within <laughs> my price range. They probably cost 40p or something. And so that's immediately what I would have thought of when I said gnomes um, at that time. Mm. If someone had said what a gnome is. Th there is another association in British culture, and I'm not so sure if this has dripped down into American culture at this date or earlier. From the 1920s through to the 1960s, the most successful British children's writer was Enid Blyton. Is this an author that kids in the US grow up with? I don't think so. I'm I'm familiar with it just because it's part of my research, but I really don't think that she made it across the pond. I mean, she, she was she was very very big in England. So again, growing up in the late seventies, early eighties, I probably read fifty books by Enid Blight, and she was very very prolific. And she had essentially two specialities. The first were stories about the little people, in other words, fairy folk. And then the second were rather implausible adventures involving adolescents in their early teens. The famous five, the secret. Famous seven. five, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And arguably the single most <laughs> famous series that she wrote was a series uh, about a well, there's some difficulty in defining him, but a pixie um, or a brownie called Big Ears and his friend, the wooden boy, Noddy. So Noddy and Big Ears. And these were absolutely huge. Uh, Enid Blyton began, her first book was published in 1949, illustrated by a Dutch artist in Holland. There's quite a tradition of painting and illustrating what we think of as gnomes um, and uh, a fascinatingly rich seam of folklore there in the Netherlands. And this went on to the 60s. I think she published 21 of these. And what's crucial about this is not only are we looking at two characters, where particularly one of them, Big Ears, looks like the gnomes the children um, are describing and looks like a garden gnome. Also, they are usually pictured in the books in Noddy's car with two of them driving around in these rather this rather sleek Alfa Romeo type bubble car. So there's, there's not only the idea there of gnomes, but there's gnomes and cars. Exactly. That's, uh, to me, that was the first thing that struck me about this whole account was how close it matched the naughty books and the naughty uh i believe there was a cartoon series as well that's right so in the in the um i think it's in the early 40s there was an absolutely dreadful puppet show put on of noddy and his friends but in the way of things, this became a classic. It was in in terms of technology in 1959, sorry, in the early 50s, it was relatively sophisticated and kids just lapped it up. So my father's generation, for instance, just thought that this was to watch Noddy on Sunday afternoon was the absolute tops. What I would say is by the time that I was growing up in the 70s, Noddy's was yesterday's news in the mm. same way that for my kids, Star Wars is on their mental radar, but it's not quite as important as it was for my Love generation. It. Uh -huh. um, but it's interesting that in the report, when the kids, uh, when one of the kids, I, I think it's Angela, is describing what the gnome's life looked like, she said, a nightcap on like Noddy. 
So mm-hmm. immediately, that's the point of reference for these kids. Yeah, that's uh, even if they weren't watching the shows or reading the books, they knew about the visual image that had permeated the culture so much. Yeah, absolutely. They, they would have seen it everywhere. They would have seen it in bookshops. Um, they, they would have seen it on TV. They would have seen it in posters in elder brothers or elder sisters rooms. Um, so they, they were definitely images that were out there. Chris, mm-hmm. this brings us neatly along to the question of the descriptions of the kids. I'm thinking specifically of the clothes and the cars. Well, once again, we find descriptions of fairies or gnomes wearing archaic clothing. They're wearing what was sort of vaguely medieval clothing. They're wearing tights instead of pants. Um, They're also wearing stocking caps. And as you said, the child described it as one that you used to see in the olden days when they used to go to bed. Hmm. And that's what Naughty wears. He wears what is sort of like a a sleep cap, like we would think of uh, maybe um, in a Victorian novel. It's it's all very archaic. None of it is, is modern. The, and the colorful cars, they were very colorful. Um, the gnomes drove were also similar to the roadster cars in the naughty illustrations, down to what the kids described as a triangular headlamp, which I think was an attempt to describe the tapered cylindrical headlights of some of the vintage cars. Uh, it's a very uh, sporty looking car. But I was puzzled that although the children mentioned naughty, and his clothes are just as the children described the gnomes is looking or wearing. It's the Naughty series character, Big Ears, who has the beard and who is actually a gnome. Naughty is, an, is, a, is a wooden boy. Uh, it also seems strange, you know, some of the children said they were frightened by the gnomes that were chasing them. There were two other characters, I think Sly and Gobbo. Um, they were gremlins or goblins, and they were scary creatures. But nobody mentioned those, and they didn't mention Big Ears. So they only mentioned Naughty, which I think is interesting. I mean, first of all, you mentioned these two villains. What were they called? Gobbo and Sly and Gobbo. Great. Sly and Gobbo. Yeah. You have to give it to Enid Blyce, and she was really good with names. Um, Listen, I've never heard of Sly and Gobbo in my life. Oh, okay. And I I think they might have been peripheral characters that she added later or they were thrown into the tv show or something yeah this is the extent of which that generation interacted with that program it was second and third hand interaction and so Mm -hmm. it's we would have seen the pictures around i certainly saw lots of noddy stuff growing up i have a couple of noddy books on my shelves over here that i think i inherited from older cousins but we we weren't down on all the characters in the noddy universe we knew these things second hand so we, we weren't reading the noddy books maybe we'd once caught a program on tv and we'd seen these very very striking pictures as to Big Ears not being a gnome, I looked into this and Ina Blyton describes Noddy actually at the beginning as a pixie. The artist says, no, no, he's a gnome. And someone else describes him as a brownie in the early volumes. So he's described in different ways by different people. I think the takeaway, though, is he looks like a gnome. When I talked about going to a garden centre and being tempted out of my 50p pieces uh, by this little bit of plastic, they looked like big ears. Yeah, so he he had the iconography of yes. a gnome, as yes. it were. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So was this the only time gnomes were seen in the area? Is there some tradition of these things uh, in Woolerton? 
First of all, we know from Marjorie Johnson, who was the Secretary of the Ferry Investigation Society, that there had been some other sightings in Woolerton Park. Now, if you are talking about gnomes who drove around in little cars, I am not sure that her sightings will necessarily satisfy you. But she talked to people who'd been going to the park over the previous two generations, up until the late 19th century. And there's one charming account where a woman going past the main entrance to Woolerton Park, which is about 500 yards, I would say, from the swamp, described how she saw a number of gnomes dressed, or gnomes, a number of small people, she didn't use the word gnomes, uh, dressed as policemen. Now, it's worth remembering here that in Marjorie Johnson's idea of fairies, and this is true of many people who come from a more um, theosophical or spiritualist tradition of fairies, Fairies are constantly imitating the environment around them. And so Marjorie Johnson, I suspect, thought that the um, gnomes had been watching Noddy shows or had seen Noddy T-shirts or something like this. And in the same way, they decided to ape the local policemen in an earlier generation. And she has this lovely phrase. She says, there's an ancient tribe of little people living in the park. So this is one account I, I would just put it in much more general terms. We have accounts going back that Woolerton Park was a magical place. Let's put it like this. Okay. Now, Chris, you will also know this from the sources, um, but this is often passed over in accounts of the 1979 sightings. The kids saw, um, they had their run in in late September, but two of them said they'd already seen the no right. in the summer holidays. It's what they, they refer to on the tape recording is the six week holidays. And then finally, I've had over the years, four or five people write to me with accounts of seeing gnomes and gnome like figures in the area of the park. I was very sceptical about these. I felt that this was just a knock-on effect in one way or the other from this very publicised incident in the park. Um, However, there were so many of them that I've now begun to wonder if the for whatever reason, there generally was some kind of tradition that developed there. And let's face it, from the point of view of folklore, who cares what the reasons are? What concerns us is that there was a tradition. If we get into the 40 in questions, of course, there we ourselves will be in the swamp. I went looking to see what I could find about local lore, and, and most of what I saw was thing, sort of traditional things like phantom hitchhikers and white ladies and lantern, phantom lanterns and that sort of thing. There, there was very little, at least online, that I saw about fairy tradition or gnome traditions in the area. So that kind of intrigued me. It's, it's absolutely it's absolutely the case that Nottinghamshire is one of these fairy black patches. Um, when you think of the UK, if you want to find fairy lore from Cornwall, it's coming out of your ears. I could give you six or seven books yeah. right now. Um, there are other areas of England, for example, Kent, where there is very, very little in the way of fairy law. Huh. I'm afraid that Nottinghamshire is one of these areas where we have very, very little fairy law. And you, you've made me think twice now with your observation about fairy disorientation and falling in the mud. But for me, maybe we can talk about traditions here, but I will be very surprised if they link into earlier traditions. 
unless, and again, being a little bit out there, unless we have some kind of special energy in this park. But yeah, absolutely. There's there's no recorded fairy traditions here beyond Marjorie Johnson, so beyond the end of the 19th century. I was you know, trying to make connections where they deliberately built this fantastical house on top of a hill. And I'm like, was it a fairy mound? Uh, there was also an extremely low fertility rate for the Willoughby family. Uh, the heirs would die young. Children didn't survive beyond infancy. And people were constantly having to give the estate to their nephew because they didn't have any children. And I'm like, were the were the children being kidnapped? Were they being oh. taken away by the fairies? Yeah. You know, Bit of a stretch, quite a bit of a stretch. Anyone who spends even a couple of hours looking at the traditions around Woolerton and the area, this was a house that was magnetised as far as folklore tradition went. Maybe it was the only big house in the area. Uh, English houses of the aristocracy and the lower aristocracy uh, attract these kind of legends, but Woolerton is a pin-up example of this. When I've been through looking at writing on this subject... I've enjoyed all the different explanations that people have. Dan Green, who has led recent efforts to look at this this case of the gnomes, says, I think, jokingly, that maybe the kids got mixed up with men in golf carts driving around. (laughs) Um, I, I, I love this. The headmaster himself said, are you sure that you didn't see other children? Chris, what do you think is going on? Oh, gosh, I wish I knew. (laughs) Now. Some random thoughts here. Uh, The description of the gnomes was that they steered the cars by leaning. Now, that suggests something out of a cartoon. But the one child did a a drawing of the gnome with a car, and it's a very boxy-looking car. And you'll have to forgive this leap. It looks to be like the wooden mining pits that ran on a rail, like bumper cars that used to haul coal from the Woolerton pits on a local wagonway. Coal mining was a principal industry here until the early 1940s. The Woolerton mines were known as bell pits. They were relatively shallow, and very young children were sent to work in the pits. And of course, gnomes are traditionally believed to live underground and work as miners. Is it possible that the coal mines and local miner lore suggested the presence of gnomes? Well, I'm intrigued by this. It's certainly true that Nottinghamshire had this very strong mining tradition that slowly died out in the post-war period. I've never heard mining connected to this incident. But just to focus in on one of the points you made, one of the children said that when they were steering... Chris, can you remind me? They leaned to direct. They leaned, yeah. Rather, and and it sounds like something you'd see in a cartoon, you know, where the characters are exaggeratedly leaning around a corner. I mean, or as you've pointed out, I think as bumper cars in a in a carnival ride. I I don't know why, but that's the image that keeps coming into my mind when I think about leaning. And when people are in bumper cars, they also take on these exaggerated moves particularly when they're trying to smash into another car, this kind of thing. And we do know that fair rides were sometimes put on in the park. But whether you go with mining or whether you go with fairground rides or whether you go on with seeing people with noddy T-shirts, 
I suppose all three of these would lean towards what? That some local elementals are imitating human activities? <laughs> or is there some way that we can explain this just in terms of these kids out and about? Were the children seeing people in golf carts? Um, there is a golf club on the grounds. Um, and I've seen the suggestion that these were men in golf carts and the colorful clothes were just golfing costumes. But I think this can be shot down because it would have been highly unusual to find a group of golfers wearing waist-length beards in 1979. And actually, I did a quick survey of 1970 golf cart designs, and they showed few, if any, headlights. Um, It was a good theory, given some of the colorful and bizarre clothes golfers used to wear in the 70s, but I don't think it quite holds up. Another element, when people have looked at this case before, they haven't been clear where it takes place. We have pretty much nailed it down now to the north of the park. The golf mm-hmm. course is the southeast of the park. So it's this is a non-starter unless we have a hypothesis where 30-odd people on golf carts go half a mile out of their way. It's right. It's yeah. golf carts, it's a beautiful, poetic interpretation, but it's not. <laughs> It's not going to work. I love the way, Chris, you went and actually checked the design of 1970s golf carts looking for lights. It's my job. (laughs) All in a day's work. All in a day's work. (laughs) Now, I've also joked in terms of what was really going on. I've joked that the gnomes were naughty tulpas. You know, thought forms made manifest or a what they call a willed imagined being, not unlike children's imaginary friends. But this begs the question, why would only a certain entity like Nadi um, spring to Tulpa-esque life? Taking this a bit further, you've mentioned garden centers. Those garden gnomes were in gardens all over Britain. They just positively infested the place. Why didn't these gnomes come to life in the imagination of hundreds of small children elsewhere? Why just particularly here? And why in cars? Because garden gnomes don't drive cars so it's just odd to me if you if you're going to say that uh, certain popular culture things suddenly come alive um, it's been suggested for example like a single episode of the outer limits was behind the emergence of the alien image of the greys mm. why would that particular image after one viewing become the face of the standard space alien why were garden gnomes not the standard image that these children were seeing? Why was it naughty? And these are questions that, of course, can't possibly be answered. I think also it might be worth just pointing out that the the meeting with these strange entities was rather more complicated than is sometimes suggested in the books. One thing that we get from some of the newspaper reports and from the interviews is that the kids were looking up in the trees when they first saw these beings. So I think of there as being three phases. There's the phase where they look up into the trees and start to see these various beings. These beings then jump down. One of the kids even suggests in one of the newspaper reports that one of them jumped on his back and that was why he fell. This was Patrick, I think, fell over into the mud. Um, And then the kids seem to have skedaddled quite sensibly. Um, And then as they were heading off, and I think it was only part of the group that had gone into the swamps, 
then some of the younger members of the group also saw the gnomes chasing them. Now, I personally would feel, as the, the podcast skeptic, a lot happier in my mind if it was just, say, two of this group of six who had gone into the swamp area. They'd crawled through the fence. They'd fallen over. And one kid certainly, but apparently two, reading between the lines, fell into the mud and various explanations are given for this. And then they came running out. And I can imagine a situation like that where something is seen and this thing is seen in a rather unusual context with a bit of adrenaline. The kids come running out, tell a story that quickly grows in the telling. Right. Um, and then the kids go away. And apparently six kids have had this experience, but actually really it was a smaller group and who knows what happened. Mm. My difficulty, though, is it is three kids. They're interviewed apart. They're relatively consistent. In fact, a little bit too consistent in what they say. Yeah. Maybe we want to pick up on this, too. <laughs> um, but they seem to have had this experience. But then the younger kids start seeing um, the gnomes as they're heading for the exit. And I, I, I find this quite a curious sequence of events it makes it much more difficult just to throw it in the rubbish bin right is it uh you know mass hallucination as everybody likes to talk about um and while not in any way suggesting the children made the story up but the detail for example of precisely 60 gnomes and 30 cars just seems a bit too well rehearsed and obviously the kids had some time to discuss the events and came to this kind of startling calculation before they spoke to the headmaster. Um, I will say I was impressed by the excellent job that the headmaster did in interviewing the children. Only once or twice uh, did I think that a question was leading, and that only very slightly. It was very well done. But that said, I can remember being interrogated on some matter by my very kindly school principal when I was an elementary school student. And frankly, if he had said, You've no doubts at all that what you saw was little men in cars. Even if I'd made the story up out of whole cloth, I would not have been able to admit it to him. No matter how kind he was, it would have been a loss of face and I would have felt I'd had to stick to my story. But of course, that's just me. I don't know how the other children actually felt. Uh, it was interesting to note that the children did not mention any feeling of specialness or being singled out, which is something very common among um, reports in, say, the fairy census, where we talk about where the children report what they saw years ago. And they talk about this feeling of being singled out and it changing their life. And that's something that these children did not mention. There's a lot of really interesting material there. Can I just start with the 60 um, gnomes, 30 cars? Right. Three kids are interviewed. All three of them give that detail. Right. But when they're giving descriptions of the gnomes, there are slight discrepancies. For example, one of the kids mm -hmm. says that the gnome has a black beard and the other two kids say that the gnomes had white beards, I think, with red tip. But the mm -hmm. 60 gnomes, 30 cars is repeated by all three. It yes. is just inconceivable that these kids, and completely unnatural, that these kids have clearly, for the previous two days or day and a half, been speaking with between themselves and with their friends about what happened. And unconsciously, probably, they settled on these details. As to the headmaster, let, let me just get some of this off my chest. I, I, I'm now in my late 40s. 
And when I listen to this tape recording, so it's on the Tuesday, the kids have their experience Sunday evening. And on Mm. Tuesday, he sits down with them one by one and does this recording. And he literally goes through the kids. So it's, I think it's Angela first, then Patrick, then Andrew. He records these three. And then he seems to have given this both to the local press and to Marjorie Johnson at the Fairy Investigation Society. And I mean, my God, Chris, today, can you imagine a headmaster doing this? Let's leave aside (laughs) the question of whether he did it well or not. But this guy would be in court in a flash. It's one of these things where the world has changed and perhaps the world has changed for the worse. But but for me, it's it's still quite jarring. The headmaster, I agree, is a very impressive, down-to-earth sounding person. And at the end, he says something along the lines of, I can't believe this, yet I believe the children. And isn't that so often our reaction right. when we find ourselves right. face-to-face with convincing witnesses? Yeah. Well, let me throw one more little grenade into the, the mix here. Um I was wondering, you know, they're talking about seeing things coming out of the trees and seeing these gnomes racing around in their cars. I wonder just how visible they could have been. Um, The date, 23 September 1979. Sunset occurred on that day at 7.02 p.m. They supposedly had their encounter between, say, as you say, 8 or 8.30 p.m. It would have been quite, quite dark. And even darker under the trees. Now, in the interview with the headmaster, the headmaster said, was it in the dark? And one child said, yes, they only come out at dark, I think. And it was also interesting that one child said something to the effect that the gnomes wouldn't come out under the street lights because the lights would harm them. But it just seems like it would have been almost impossibly dark at the time these children said they saw these gnomes. Unless, of course, they got the time wrong. I think we can be fairly sure about the time because there seems to be a consistency. And it's also part of a wider series of events that happened that evening. And the kids describe um, how they went out for two hours together. And for me, this is one of the, the, the curious details. The encounter with the gnomes was actually one of their first events. Now, they'd walked a little bit of way from their home that was about a mile off to get to the park. They go in. You're absolutely right. It was dark. I don't know about cloud cover, but I do know the moon was close to being full. So there may have been some light from that. Ah, okay. They go, they go into the park and then they, they have this experience. And then one of the things that I find absolutely... Well, well, counterintuitive, let's say, is they spend another hour and a half before they go home kicking around the streets. And here I, I'm just going to sound like a, a middle class prig, but <laughs> I, I went out playing in 1979. And I can tell you on Sunday night, I was in bed at eight. The ah. idea that these kids were running up and down the streets at 10 Part of it is envy on because I, I so often at that time wished I could be one of the people doing that. But they, they do seem to have been kids somewhat left to their own devices. For me, on a school night, as my mom would have said, to get through the door at about 10 o'clock would have been borderline scandalous. Yes, uh, you're right. You're right. Hmm. But, but Chris, look, you've, you, you made a broader point about the light. Marjorie Johnson had a, a really simple explanation for this. She said, well, gnomes, fairies, um, the fairy people are luminous. And mm-hmm. she makes quite a big deal about this. And it's true. It, in lots of accounts we have, we have emphasis on the fact that fairies can be seen in the dark, that they glow in the dark, these kind of issues. And this is something that goes all the way back, we both know, into the Middle Ages. 
The other point that the kids make is that there were streetlights on the nearby street. Now, one of the useful things that we now know pretty much where this event took place is that we can see the distance. And those streetlights were not close. In the second round of encounters with the gnomes, these kids may um, have been much closer to the streetlights if the gnomes followed them in this phase when the mm. younger children saw. But certainly in the in the early phase when they were going into the swamp, um, I don't think that they would have been seeing very, very well. And the headmaster, again, we see what a good questioner he was. He focused on this with two of the three kids. How could you see them, given it was dark? The fact that there were street lamps and they might have walked towards them or been chased towards them, that does make sense. I can see, you know, having some strange event like this happen to you. Why wouldn't you run right home? But at the same time, we have other supernatural encounters with people who say, yes, I, then I saw a ghost and I just rolled over and went to sleep. Or the aliens came and invaded my bedroom and I just ignored them and fell asleep. So people do, there are reports of people doing seemingly ordinary things that we think they wouldn't do in these kinds of supernatural encounters. And Chris, doesn't that link into what you were saying before, that these kids didn't feel special? It just felt like something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't particularly extraordinary. It was out of the ordinary, let's say, but not particularly extraordinary. They'd already seen these creatures in the, in the summer holidays. They saw them again now. They came yeah. home yet again. They weren't believed by their parents. And at this point, somehow this leaked into the local press and then became a national story. When they're talking about it, I I think you're absolutely right what you said before. This isn't some life-changing moment for them. It's just something that happened in the texture of the day. And this business about playing out for an hour, hour and a half after, only one of the kids broke down and started crying, one of the six-year-olds. And the rest seemed to have just taken it in their, step, in their stride. And that might be why the known witnesses haven't come forward now. I know people have asked for them to come forward and it might be because they're embarrassed by what was a youthful prank or it's just reticence over what they now see as a private memory. And it wasn't so special and why would anyone want to talk about it? I began to be interested in 2017 and I actually sent out an appeal in the, the Nottinghamshire press. And so people who've looked for it on the internet have been able to find it. And then this year, Dan Green, who I mentioned before, who is just this absolutely extraordinary fellow, took this all very seriously and also went out looking for the original witnesses. Now, there were six. It's inconceivable that some of them are not still in the Nottingham area. And I suspect that all of them still have family in the Nottingham area. I've come to the conclusion that these are people who just don't want to be found. And mm -hmm. I, I think you'll have come across in some legal systems, there's now the idea of the right to be forgotten. This yes. is particularly in the internet age where if you play cello in an orchestra and one night you throw a cello at someone and you're very, very bad and this is reported in the press. Ten years later, you have a right for this story just to disappear. You shouldn't have things haunting your life all the time. Mm -hmm. My personal view is that the same applies to gnome experiences. That, And I think we can be fairly sure of this at, at the present point. Then it, it falls to us to leave them in peace, really. And I'll be talking in a few minutes about the book I've been preparing of the sources for Woolerton. And in the end, I've decided to go very, very low 
on getting in touch with people because they already know. And I suppose that does open up in some people's minds the question of, well, does that actually reflect on whether the experience was genuine or not? What would you say to that? I think it's just that uh, perhaps you would say this was my private experience. It was a long time ago. It's my business. It's not yours. And I, I just feel that if, if I were one of those people, I might take that attitude. You can believe me or not, but this is what happened and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I, I don't think it's an indication of either uh, guilt or innocence as far as, you know, whether this really happened. I We can't possibly make any kind of judgment about that at this remove. So I'm inclined to say, as the headmaster did, that... Uh, if you don't believe the story, at least the children were convinced, you know, he was convinced by the truth of the children. This sounds a very sensible approach to me. Let me, though, I, I, I am convinced that something happened to these kids, but let me give you the most skeptical account I can manage of that evening and see if you will go along with me or whether you're a little bit more trusting of the experiences they were described. Um, these kids get to the park an hour after dark. They mess around in a local school. They're out near the adventure playground and then they come to the swamp. Now, there are six of them and they're aged from about six to ten. I think that only three of them actually went through the fence into the swamp and conceivably fewer of them. But only three of them really saw what was going on. And the big question for me is, how much did they see of what was actually going on, given how dark, even with a moon out, how much yeah. were they actually seeing, particularly when we remember the details that they went into of the colours of the car and the colours of the clothes. Right. At this point, they retreat from this little woodland area, the swamp, they come running out and they meet their other the other kids. One of the kids challenges them, apparently, and doubts the story. And then when they're heading back, they're running towards the entrance and there are several Several entrances in the parks. So we're not absolutely sure which one. One of the other, one of the younger kids sees the gnomes too and actually apologizes for not believing the other kid. This for me suggests that really only a, a number of them, perhaps only three of were there for the original encounter. But it is interesting that they were seeing something there as they got towards the entrance. And whether this is some kind of mountain group hysteria. Um, I have no idea. And then they get to the, the gate and they're out into the night and presumably they're talking excitedly. And here, secondary elaboration begins. My question is, why don't we know more about the earlier sightings? Uh, were, those, were those in the daylight? Were those in better lighting conditions? What did they see then? When they, you know, said, oh, yes, we saw them before during the summer holidays. I would like to know more about that. Um, before I would make a decision about this particular case. But one of the kids says that they saw them before in the summer holidays in the dark. So this was another nighttime experience. And Chris, I have to say here too, this is where I find these this group of kids interesting. For me, if I was, when I was, um, say, age six, seven, eight, nine, ten, to go into a dark park at night that didn't have its own lights even on a moonlit night, even in company of six people, I, you know, it's not it's not the most natural thing. I, I can imagine I would have done it with a large enough group, but it, it's more than that. Three of these kids were on a general part of parkland, a field, if you like, and three of them broke away from the group and went through the fence into the swamps, into this dense area of boggy woodland. Right. 
Yeah. For me, but for me, this is this is not something that we should absolutely take for granted in the behavior of young kids. I, yeah. I would say that these were these were pretty kind of tough and up for it kids. Uh, double dare you. Double dare you. Go in, go beyond the fence. See if okay. You get okay. Listen, I'm I'm good for double daring, but this is a double dare situation. I don't think three 10 year olds would go into a dense, dark area without being double dared or wanting to show off oh. to see who they liked. Or oh, I do, I do. I, I I know children. I know young boys. They you know run into walls full speed just because they can or they do because they've just got this. It, it's just a it's a developmental phase where you're not looking ahead. You're not looking at what could possibly go wrong. You're just going to do the thing. And I I really feel that. This this doesn't seem abnormal to me. This this seems like perfectly normal kid behavior. So so Chris, in the end, you you agree with me that these kids were sincere, very probably. Uh, I think they were. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm thinking back to an experience I had as a as an elementary school kid. Um, our school backed up on a very deep ravine and lots and lots of woods. And I would always go back there and wander around um, during recess just to see what I could see. And one day I would have sworn that I saw this Gothic fairy chapel down in the ravine. And I'm like all freaked out about it. And I come back and it's actually some kind of just a ordinary sort of cobbled together wood structure like they were doing some pipe work or something, some drainage work. And yet I saw Gothic arches. I didn't see this rough hewn, you know, just these, these two by fours nailed roughly together. What was I seeing? So the mind is a strange thing. Um, I wasn't expecting to see anything at all when I was looking down into the ravine, but I remember that very vividly because when I came back, it was not the same structure. So I don't know, maybe the fairies were playing tricks with me. I, I was getting quite excited there. I thought for a minute we were going to have a whole program on the, the fairy chapel of Ohio. <laughs> Chris is running with the with with fairydom. Perhaps at this point we, we need to talk a little bit about sources. So those who are yes, interested yes. and intrigued by what we've been saying can right. read a list. Where can we read more? I, I mentioned before that there are there are really three important sources. The, the, the most important source is this incredible tape recording that the headmaster did two days after on Tuesday, on the Tuesday after the sighting. Now, a few years ago, th- this had been missing for many years, um, but a few, about three years ago, I think now, someone got in touch with me and this person um, wants to remain anonymous. So I call her, and it is a she, the benefactor. And the benefactor provided me with a transcript. Now, the benefactor is a person who I would trust to the ends of the universe, but she was able to better the transcript and sent me as well the tape. And at that point, it's taken me a long time, but I finally managed to get a tape recorder and I've now uploaded this onto the computer and we have a digital version. So I went back, uh, checked the transcript. And so that's our first source. The second source is Marjorie Johnson, as I mentioned, carried out an investigation at the time, and she wrote a reflection on what happened to the kids in Seeing Fairies, um, her book uh, published posthumously in 2014, I think. And then the third thing is, and this is where I've had least progress, 
there were many news reports at the time. And I've gathered together some of these, but above all, I've lent on the excellent work of Bob Rickard at Fortean Times, who did a kind of roundup of the news stories about the Woolerton Gnomes in the spring of 1980. This was when Fortean Times came out, I think, four, four times a year seasonally. And I've put these together in a single volume, and this will be published with Puka Books. So by the time the podcast goes up, it will be a book that can be ordered on Amazon. But I've also persuaded a number of colleagues to join me in writing short essays. I've written a short essay on Enid Blyton and Gnomes, for instance, Jack Hunter, um, a, a great Fortean writer, uh, Bob Rickard again, Neil Rushton, John Cruz, a number of other people um, have also written short essays on various aspects of this case and various reflections on relevant fairy law. For example, uh, Jack has written about gnomes and gardens and the way we see fairies and gardens, this kind of thing. Um, and this will be out by the 1st of February. And so this is something that hopefully will be a good place to start with the sources. Having said that, really, there are two gaps. The first gap is we need someone who will go to a British copyright library and who will stay in a bed and breakfast if need be for seven days and will go and order all the damn newspapers from Nottingham, <laughs> from Nottingham and also, though, nationally for the relevant mm -hmm. days. So this is a 10 day stretch. It's not a joke. And you've got to remember that a lot of this is that this stuff hasn't been digitized. So the person who does this is going to have to go old school. But already from Bob's excellent summaries, there is lots of information in the news reports that weren't there in the interview. Ah. Now, whether that means the interview is less trustworthy or this information is more trustworthy, I'll leave that for others. But the sources are out there then, and we're coming to the point where we can really look at this material. The second thing, of course, would be to talk to one of the grown six children who had this experience. As I've said before, as far as I'm concerned, there's a right to be forgotten. And guys, if you're listening to this, I'm certainly going to leave you in peace. I'm not going to stalk you on Facebook or uh, come chasing after you on Google. But if any of you ever wake up one morning um, and you want to have your voice heard uh, and we put you down as child three or something along these lines, that would be that would be wonderful. That would be a way to in the in the second edition of this book that will come along in three or four years. It would be a way to add a whole other dimension. Oh, that would be wonderful. But I can understand reticence. There's just so much ridicule. And, and, you know, your neighbors are going to be whispering about you. you know, yeah, they saw they thought they saw gnomes or something. So I, I, I can perfectly understand why people would not want to talk. Chris, I think after this podcast, you, you will regret your confession about the fairy gothic chapel. I, I can already hear why? Whispers, whispers in suburban Ohio. Oh, yeah, well, my already. <laughs> no, no, but you and I both know this is something that we've experienced at firsthand. And I think, Chris, you deal with it much, much better than me. But sometimes I'm aware I, I find myself with a series of five or six academics and there's someone who um, studies the origins of the fork and someone who studies... Um, the dialectics of George Eliot, and I study fairy sightings, and there's this <laughs> silence. And so, if 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 the Woolerton kids are out there listening, just know that I I, I understand what you've been through. I, I completely share and in your desire to be forgotten. So you were going to play, I think, a little 
snippet from the interview with the children and the headmaster? Yes, after my my long sermon about how these kids have a right to be forgotten, let's finish right. the podcast mm. by actually playing their voices. Right now, then, can you describe um, how many was it? Well, how many were there? Start off with, what did you say? Well, there's about six to end with. There's about 30 cars and there's two in each car. Two in each car? Yeah. Yeah. Did the cars have any lights on? Well, they did have lights at the one time. I see, yeah. And um, how fast were they going, these cars? About 40, 50 miles an hour. Really fast? Yeah. Did they have engines? No, you couldn't hear them at all. Yeah. And when they first came out, were you frightened? Yeah. Was <laughs> the first time you've seen them? That's the second time. What happened the first time? Well, they didn't actually chase us, we just seen them in the bush and they ran, they ran off. Was that, was that on the same night or was this a long time ago? That was a long time ago, about six weeks holidays. In Woolerton Park? Yeah. Was it, was it uh, in the dark? Was it dark when you saw them the first time? Yeah. Come out of dark, I think. Mm.